the K47 podcast. My name is Kristen Godsey, and I'm a professor of Russian and East European studies at the University of Pennsylvania, and the author of Why Women Had Better Sex Under Socialism and Other Arguments for Economic Independence, which has just been released in Indonesian in the last week or so. Uh, that follows upon the Russian and French and Thai translation. So it's been a really interesting time uh, talking to people from other parts of the world and the way that the book is being received by non-American and even non-European audiences uh, in, in the case of, of Thailand and Indonesia. Anyway, I am sitting here on a, a Sunday. It's a beautiful day here in Philadelphia. It is December 13th. It's actually kind of warm outside. Uh, things are not going great in the United States in terms of the coronavirus, as I'm sure many of you know. But as we slide towards the end of December, I have to say I am feeling really good about the year 2020 finally being over and trying to turn some kind of a new page in 2021. I've actually been going back over the last week or two and listening to some of the old podcasts that I recorded early in 2019 when I first started this podcast, and I'm struck at how much emphasis I have placed on the young Colin Tai. Obviously, she lived to be almost 80 years old, and in her later life, she was clearly subdued by Joseph Stalin and his policies. She spent most of that time outside of the Soviet Union, but she probably feared greatly for her life and the life of her son. And she experienced the murder and persecution of many of her former old Bolshevik colleagues, but she survived largely again, possibly because she was outside of the country, but also because, let's face it, she didn't really stand up to Stalin in the way that she had stood up to Lenin in the earlier era. She was certainly more subdued in her later life. And and it's also true that a lot of her writing, uh, the most interesting writing, was done before the 1917 revolution and in the immediate aftermath of the revolution in the 20s, the kind of tumultuous and exciting era of the early Soviet Union as they were trying to really cobble together the first worker state. So in the interest of fairness, I think I'm going to take a moment in this episode to talk about the later Colin Tai. And I'm going to do that by reading from a piece that she published in 1946, which was included in a collection of her writings that was put together in the Soviet Union and then obviously translated into English in 1984. And this book, uh, which is just a sort of collected, selected articles and speeches of Alexandra Kolontai, was published in the Soviet Union. And it includes some commentary and a little introduction. And it also has a quite interesting timeline at the end of the book that I'm going to read from very briefly before I read this piece from 1946. I'm going to start in 1930. Uh, so we'll put this, the 20s behind us for the time being and, and really think about the older Kolontai. As you know, she was born in 1872. 
So in 1930, she would have been 58 years old. So it's in 1930 that she is appointed the Soviet minister in Sweden. And on March 7th, 1933, Kolontai is awarded the Order of Lenin for her, and this is a quote, selfless service in the communist education of women, workers, and peasants. And in June of 1930, 33, she is instrumental in obtaining an arrangement on the return to the USSR of gold reserves placed in Swedish banks by the Kerensky government. That would be the provisional government from 1917. Then the timeline says that on May 20th in 1935, quote, she plays an active part in establishing the Swedish Soviet Society for Cultural Contacts and is elected an honorary member of its management board. And from the 9th to the 22nd of September in 1935, she attends the 16th Assembly of the League of Nations as a member of the Soviet delegation. She works on the legal commission set up to investigate the legal and economic position of women. So this is 1935. It's quite interesting that Kollontai was actually active at the precursor to the United Nations as early as 1935. In 1936, between September 20th and October 1st, she attends the 17th Assembly of the League of Nations as a member of the Soviet delegation. From the 12th of September to the 12th of October in 1937, she attends the 18th Assembly of the League of Nations as a member of the Soviet delegation and works on the legal commission. In 1940, obviously the war has already started in Europe between January and March. She is involved in the preliminary work on the signing of an armistice during the war with Finland. This is the winter war in Finland. The, the Soviets had in fact invaded uh, the Finns. In 1942, this is a quote, by a decree of the Presidium of the Supreme Soviet of the USSR on the occasion of her 70th birthday, Alexandra Kolontai is awarded the Order of the Red Banner of Labor for her outstanding service to the Soviet state, and she is appointed a doyen of the diplomatic corps in Sweden. On the 16th of September in 1943, by a decree of the Presidium of the Supreme Soviet of the USSR, Alexandra Kolontai is raised to the rank of ambassador extraordinary and plenipotentiary. Uh, and then in 1945, obviously at the end of the war on September 5th, she is awarded a second order of the Red Banner of Labor for successfully fulfilling the tasks set by the Soviet government during the Great Patriotic War, 1941 to 1945. Between 1946 and 1952, it says here that she does a great deal of work as an advisor to the USSR Ministry for Foreign Affairs. It is also during this period of time that she is twice nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. She does not get it, but interestingly, the Soviets decide not to mention that in her little timeline here. And the final entry is that on March 9th, 1952, Alexandra Kolontai dies from a heart attack shortly before her 80th birthday. She obviously had a very busy diplomatic life during uh, the Stalin era. I mean, she did not outlive Stalin, obviously. 
she lived the latter years, latter decades of her life under the shadow of Stalinist communism in the Soviet Union. And yet, you know, as I said earlier, she spent most of this time abroad and was actually able to work on behalf of the Soviet Union, not only diplomatically in terms of getting gold reserves returned and negotiating peace treaties, very importantly, between the Soviet Union and Finland, but she also was already as early as 1935 working at the international level to support women's rights. So the piece that I'm going to read to you today is from 1946, and it's called The Soviet Woman, a Full and Equal Citizen of Her Country. It's from September of that year. And again, uh, this has been selected and translated by the Soviet government in 1984, and it is abridged. So they have selected parts of the original article, which I believe was published in Soviet Woman in 1946. So this is Kolontai. It is a well-known fact that the Soviet Union has achieved exceptional successes in drawing women into the active construction of the state. This generally accepted truth is not disputed even by our enemies. The Soviet woman is a full and equal citizen of her country. In opening up to women access to every sphere of creative activity, our state has simultaneously ensured all the conditions necessary for her to fulfill her natural obligation, that of a mother bringing up her children and mistress of her home. So just an aside there, I think that obviously Kolontai was pretty pro-natalist, but this was specifically going to be a concern in 1946 because, as I'm sure many of you know, the Soviets lost upwards of 25 million citizens in the Second World War to defeat the Nazis. And so increasing the birth rate in 1946 would have been very front and center on the minds of, of Stalin and other Soviet government officials. And so I suspect here that Kolontai is sort of being forced or has been convinced that really trying to convince Soviet women who, as I'm sure you all know, fought side by side with men during the Second World War, during what they call the Great Patriotic War, to return to the home front and, and try to have babies and, and raise families. Uh, it's very important for the long-term survival of the Soviet Union, and obviously women have to be the ones to, to do this. Now, this is complicated by the fact that many men were also killed during the Second World War. And so women also need to be able to continue working in the formal sphere. It's not like in the United States or in Western Germany or Western Europe, where you could just push women back into the home after the war. The Soviets really needed their women to work. So it's the context of the post-war situation here that I think you have to remember as I read the, the rest of this piece. So this is Kolontai again. From the very beginning, Soviet law considered that motherhood is not a private matter, but the social duty of the active and equal woman citizen. This proposition is enshrined in the Constitution. The Soviet Union has solved one of the most important and complex of problems, how to make active use of female labor in any area without this being detrimental to motherhood. 
A great deal of attention has been given to the organization of public canteens, kindergartens, young pioneer camps, playgrounds, and creches. Those institutions which, as Lennon wrote, facilitate in practice the emancipation of women and are able, in practice, to reduce the female inequality vis-a-vis men. More than 7,000 women's and children's consultation centers have been established in the USSR, of which half are in rural areas. Over 20,000 creches have been organized. It should be pointed out here that in Tsarist Russia in 1913, there existed only 19 creches and 25 kindergartens. And even these were not maintained by the state, but by philanthropic organizations. The Soviet state provides increasing material assistance to mothers. Women receive allowances and paid leave before and after the birth of the child, and their post is kept open for them until they return from leave. Large and one-parent families receive state allowances to help them provide for and bring up their children. In 1945, the state paid out more than 2,000 million rubles in such allowances. The title Mother Heroine has been awarded to more than 10,000 women in the RSFSR alone, while the Order of Maternal Glory and the Medal of Motherhood have been awarded to 1,100 women. Soviet women have justified the trust and concern shown to them by their state. They have shown a high degree of heroism, both in peaceful creative labor before the war, during the years of armed battle against the Nazi invaders, and now in the efforts to fulfill the monumental tasks set by the new five-year plan. Many branches of industry in which female labor is predominant are among the first to fulfill their plans. Equally worthy of mention are the enormous achievements of the Soviet peasant women, who bore on their shoulders the greater part of the burden of agricultural labor during the war years. Our women have mastered professions that have long been considered the exclusive domain of men. There are women engine drivers, women mechanics, women lathe operators, women fitters, well-qualified women workers in charge of the most complex mechanisms. The women of the Soviet Union work on an equal footing with men to advance science, culture, and the arts. They occupy an outstanding place in the national education and health services. In a country where, 30 years ago, out of 2,300,000 2, working women, 1,300,000 worked as servants in the towns and 750,000 as farm laborers in the countryside. In a country where there were almost no women engineers, almost no scientists, an appointment to a teaching post was accompanied by conditions insulting to female dignity. In that country, there are now 750,000 women teachers, 100,000 women doctors, and 250,000 women engineers. Women make up one half of the student body in institutions of higher education. Over 33,000 women are working in laboratories and in research institutes, and 166 women have been awarded the state prize for their achievements in science and work. The women of the Soviet Union are implementing their political rights in practice. The Supreme Soviet of the USSR has 277 women deputies, while 256,000 women have been elected to rural, urban, regional, and republican organs of state power. The women of the Soviet Union do not have to demand from their government the right to work, the right to education, the right to the protection of motherhood. The state itself, the government itself, draws women into work, 
giving them wide access to every sphere of social life, assisting and rewarding mothers. During the years of invasion by Nazi aggressors, Soviet women and the women of other democratic countries saw with their own eyes the need to wage a tireless battle against Nazism until every trace of it had been removed. Only this will spare the world the threat of new wars. The struggle for democracy and lasting peace, the struggle against reaction and fascism, is the main task we face today. To cut women off from this basic and important task, to attempt to confine them within purely female, feminist organizations, can only weaken the women's democratic movement. Only the victory of democracy can ensure women equality. We, the women of the land of the Soviets, are devoting all our energy to creative labor, to the fulfillment of the monumental tasks set by the five-year plan, knowing that in doing so, we are strengthening the bulwark of peace throughout the world, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. At the same time, we must be on alert for intrigues by the reactionaries and expose their plans and intentions, their attempts to divide the ranks of democracy. The unity of all the forces of democracy is our most reliable weapon in the struggle against reaction, in the struggle for freedom and peace throughout the world. So that's a piece that Kolontai wrote in 1946, obviously in the aftermath of the war. She's trying to get women to mobilize not only for the five-year plan, but also to have lots of babies. And as I'm sure many working parents out there know, when you have a full-time job and you're trying to raise a family, it's very difficult to do both. The Soviets understood that as early as 1946, obviously much earlier than that, but Kolontai here is writing about it in 1946 and kind of bragging about all of the kindergartens and creches and the kinds of policies that she was really responsible for putting into place, particularly the canteens and, you know, some of the institutions that supported mothers. On the other hand, I think, you know, it's also a bit problematic that she is essentially admonishing Soviet women to have children. She says that your natural obligation or your, you know, duty as a Soviet citizen is to have babies. Now, the Soviet Union is not the first country in the world to encourage women to have babies. Many countries have, over the history of, of, of the modern nation state, encouraged women to have lots of babies because it will make that state stronger. But I think what's really interesting in the case of Kolontai writing in 1946 after the war, and especially after Soviet women soldiers had distinguished themselves in the war, is that unlike the United States, unlike other West European countries, which were sort of demobilizing women and forcing them to go back into the home to have babies, because all countries needed women to have babies after the war. In the case of the Soviet Union, Kolontai is really saying, look, in our country, we are going to make it possible for women to do both. We are going to support democracy. And obviously here, when she uses the word democracy, she's talking about uh, the Soviet vision of democracy, proletarian democracy, a democracy of the economy, a democracy of the workers, not what Lenin would call a bourgeois democracy. Um, or, you know, she, you know, Kolontai herself would look at the United States and she would call it a plutocracy and, or an oligarchy. She wouldn't really consider it a, a democracy, even though we use that word in the United States all the time. She believed that the true democracy was the democracy of the economy and not the democracy of the, of the polity. So on that note, uh, again, as I said, I, I do tend to focus inordinately so on the young Kolontai 
And that's because most of her really interesting writings, and particularly given the time that she was writing them, they were really quite prescient and, and revolutionary for that early moment in the late 19th and early 20th century. I do think it's it's worth occasionally focusing or visiting the the late Kollontai. And, and here, this is written just six, year, six years before her death. She's 74. You know, she's obviously trying to get women to fall in line and support the Soviet state. And and I do think there's obviously this is the Stalin era still, and there's probably still a quite, you know, undertone here of of coercion, of trying to whip up sort of patriotic frenzy. But of course, you have to understand that in the context of having just won the great patriotic war, there was a lot of patriotic frenzy and quite deservedly so. And so here, Kolontai is really using her position as sort of elder stateswoman very respected old Bolshevik. And she's still, and this is the thing that impresses me the most, she's still talking about women's rights and she's still talking about women's equality. Despite everything that she's been through and despite all of the reversals that had happened to many of those earlier laws under Stalin's government in after the 1936 Family Code, here is Colin Tai, six years before her death, 74 years into her life, still admonishing the Soviet leadership to allow women to be the full equals of men in society, to not only focus on their reproductive abilities and their responsibilities as mothers. Now, again, I mean, I think there's a fair critique here that Kolontai is being very natalist and essentialist in terms of all women having this responsibility to bring children into the world. And I'm perfectly willing to accept that some people may feel really uncomfortable with that. But it's, you know, in the aftermath of the of the Second World War, you have to understand the context. And I do think the Soviets were always pro-natalist, but they were also reflecting the desires of, of many Soviet women who did want to be mothers and who wanted to be able to combine motherhood with careers. I, I don't think that's such a crazy thing. And I think there are many women around the world today who are struggling with the exact same problem of trying to be mothers and have careers or have jobs. And it's just really, I think, useful to remind ourselves constantly that people like Alexandra Kolontai, specifically Alexandra Kolontai, has been struggling with this issue since the late 19th century. And she'd been writing about it and thinking about it. And even here in the waning years of her life, she's still really committed to supporting and fighting for women's rights. So on that note, I'm going to sign off for this episode. I hope you are all safe and well. And as always, keep up the good fight. Good fight.